Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We can't begin anywhere but Ukraine, where the terrible scenes of war and violence show absolutely no sign of ending. Ukraine's government continues to function from bunkers and its president, Vladimir Zelensky, defies the force of Russia. West has responded with sanctions, the ostracization of Putin's regime, but is it enough? We're going to discuss the international reaction and what it tells us about how the UK, the EU and the US have reacted and cooperated in response to the crisis. With the spectre of a third world war hanging above us, it's difficult to talk about anything else right now, but the work of government at home continues and we have two new significant reports this week which delve deeply into the way the civil service operates, what goes wrong and how we think it should be put right. The importance of government working well and public confidence in this is even greater now, and we're going to take a look at those. Joining me in the IFG studio are two IFG colleagues who've been following the crisis closely. Alex Thomas runs our civil service programme. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. Kath Haddon, our senior fellow and expert in Cold War history, is back again. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. I'm delighted to be joined for the first time in a long time by Georgina Wright, once of this parish, but now a senior fellow and director of Institut Montaigne's Europe programme. Hi, Georgie. How have you been? Hi, Bronwyn. Really busy, but delighted to be back. Very, very good to have you. Let's begin with Ukraine, where Russian violence eight days after the invasion began is intensifying in key cities and a 40 mile long traffic jam of Russian armoured vehicles lies without much progression, still about 15 miles north of the capital. Sanctions begin to bite in Russia and with Russia's president Vladimir Putin placing his nuclear deterrent forces on a special regime of combat duty. Is there any way out of this crisis? Kath, what do you think of where we are now? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really difficult to know what's coming, you know, even in the next few hours, uh, let alone weeks, let alone, you know, maybe months. Um, right now, uh, situation, as you've said, you know, Russian forces seemingly quite bogged down in parts of Ukraine, but we also know, obviously, that uh, Russian forces are um, immense in that sense. So there is still a huge amount of damage that they can do. Um, the key question is obviously around Putin's aims and ambitions now. As far as most people can read it, he imagined it would be a lot easier journey to Kiev to um, taking control in some respects. We still don't know what his original intentions were in Ukraine. Um, that situation has now changed dram- dramatically, as has the situation in Russia. And um, he's due to be addressing the nation again later tonight um, and possibly bringing in martial law restrictions on what Russians can do. So it's become a domestic issue for him, as well as the issue in Ukraine. And it is hard to see, given how intransigent he's been, a route out uh, of this for him uh, and therefore a route out for us and, and some salvation for Ukraine itself. Do we assume that his goal is to topple the government in, in the capital, Kiev, and to uh, install a government more to his own liking? Yeah, I mean, the fact that obviously the incursions originally, the invasion, I should say, uh, was more widespread than just taking on the, the supposed breakaway regions that he'd given as an excuse for doing this, um, suggests that that was his original intention. Um, that probably still is. Uh, but the key question that, that everyone is asking and had been asking in the, in the weeks running up to this is what happens then? Because it's, you know, nigh on impossible for Russia 
to permanently hold Ukraine in this way. We we know from the way Ukraine has operated from the West support of them that a long insurgency would likely follow. Um, and so, you know, there are no good solutions. I mean, it's terrible to use these sort of phrases when you're talking about such an awful situation. But but yeah, there doesn't seem to be an easy way out. There are negotiations going on. Um, but, you know, again, given what Russia's aims, both the stated aims and obviously what everyone assumes were the aims around this, um, it ha- seems hard to see, you know, a, a way in which other than, um, you know, some kind of major events in Russia that forces them to completely change tack and to withdraw forces. It's hard to see a route out of this that isn't incredibly depressing. Alex, what, what do you make of Ukraine's calls for a no-fly zone? Would it be legal? They point out that there was one uh, enforced over Kosovo, Bosnia, Iraq, Libya, but not here. Well, legality, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure a way could be found. But I mean, uh, essentially treat with uh, extreme, extreme caution is my view. Uh, I, I completely understand, uh, empathise and <clears throat> think it's totally rational for the Ukrainian government uh, and its representatives to call for a no-fly zone because uh, that's you know, clearly, obviously, in their uh, interest. But I would be extremely cautious about it uh, from NATO or the UK, or the US's uh, perspective. I think there are two. You know, there are two competing forces here, or not competing forces, but there are two forces. One, uh, and I suspect we all feel them. There's an immense empathy with the people of Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, a desire to stand with them, to show your support, uh, and for the strongest possible sanctions regime. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I thought I was on the sort of more hawkish end of sanctions uh, in terms of welcoming where um, uh, where the uh, UK government uh, 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 was arguing for and the EU and the rest of the international community. That's exceeded uh, uh, even uh, my uh, expectations. Um, uh, so there's that powerful uh, desire to do everything possible. Um, and uh, there is, in some of the commentary, that's tipping over into things that I think then start to conflict with what we know, and Kath is far more expert on this than I am, but from uh, uh, um, nuclear um, uh, standoffs, the lessons that we've learned from the Cold War, the uh, need to give um, a nuclear-armed uh, dictator an exit strategy, an off-ramp, uh, and the rail politique. So I think well, the, the challenge for what I think has been, uh, you know, Boris Johnson and Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary and, and, and the Prime Minister, have been uh, have been uh, very uh, clear on this so far to their credit, I think. Um, but is uh, finding a way of channeling that huge sympathy with Ukraine and the people of Ukraine with some very very hard nosed, uh, you know, lessons from the last eighty years of, of global history. And as you say, it's the threat that uh, Putin could. Um put his nuclear missiles on an even higher uh, standing of readiness, if you like, that is hanging over this, I guess. Also, those military commanders who've actually run, operated the no-fly zones um, in recent conflicts have pointed out just how complicated it is to get them working. You need rules of engagement, like can you Mm -hmm. fire uh, not just at other aircraft, but at surface-to-air missiles, what is the governing authority and and so on. They're not they're not easy things to bring into place. But as you said, I mean, enormous sympathy for Ukraine's call for them. You're, you're almost um, jumping ahead, but let's jump ahead um, to the question of of a because we all want to know this a, a route through this um, the the off ramp in the American 
uh, jargon that can um, perhaps lead um, off, off the Russian leader away out of this. Georgie, I want to bring you into this. I mean, Emmanuel Macron, the, the French president, is has been um, performing a role of, of, of talking to Putin as an intermediary almost, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that he's the only Western leader to be still talking to Putin, um, along with the Israeli prime minister who spoke to the Russian president on Sunday. Um, You know, Macron's very clear on why he's doing this. Um, He says, I'm doing it because Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has asked me to do it. Um, And this morning he spoke to Putin because Putin asked to speak to Macron. So there's clearly a sense there that we need to keep that conversation going. Um, But also there's been a huge transition, a huge change in Macron's Russian policy. I mean, even three years ago, Macron was saying we need to engage Russia. We need to have a conversation. Russia has its place in European security. And now last night you have President Macron addressing the nation at 8 p.m. prime TV time saying, you know, what Putin is doing is unacceptable. We are not at war with Russia. We should support those Russians who do see differently. But we should absolutely condemn what Russia is doing and our full support Uh, to Ukraine. And he said that with the European flag, the French flag and the Ukrainian flag behind him. And according to reports, he told Putin, uh, you you are deluding yourself, you are wrong in your account of this. Mm. What about about Germany's response, which has been much, much commented on since uh, Olaf Scholz, the the, the new chancellor, threw out 16 years of of Angela Merkel's policy towards Russia in, in seven days, one headline this morning, Ian Martin in the Times, Merkel's legacy is in ruins and a good thing too, uh, he was he was arguing. Um, we, is that backed by the public in Germany? So it's absolutely incredible what we're seeing uh, happen in Germany. I mean, you know, for context, this is a country that really wanted to limit uh, defence spending. We didn't want to export any armament. And you have, you know, last week, uh, or even just a couple of days ago, a German chancellor addressing the German parliament. I mean, I spoke to some um, German MPs who said they didn't even know what the chancellor was going to propose. And here you have a government that's basically giving way to completely radical new policy. I think there is support, uh, public support for for Germany to do more. And there's a real sense in Germany that actually their security is under threat. Uh, You know, they could very well be invaded at some point. And actually, Germany has a role to play in European security. So this is fully backed by public opinion. Um, There are lots of questions of what this all means, you know, an increase in defence spending. Does this mean that the government is, you know, ready to indebt? you know, to, to take on debt uh, to finance uh, military spending? Does this mean that the government um, spends less on education, for example? So there are still lots of questions and, and the German parliament are going to hold a number of hearings with, with governments. So we'll still have to see some of the detail, but certainly this this is a radical shift. And I think this there's lots of questions for Germany's role in NATO uh, and Germany's role in EU defence as well. Thank you for that. But it, it, we're still reaching for the sense of, of whether there might be anything um, to offer an alternative to the future that we can sort of see playing out now, that, that the Russian forces eventually slowly, very bloodily take uh, Ukraine, take its main cities, um, kill or capture its president and, and so on. Kath, do you see, do you hear anything in this kind of discussion, other people's discussions for something that might um, give an alternative to to slogging this out with Russia through sanctions for decades 
with Ukrainian people living um, in, uh, under a government they absolutely don't want? No, I mean, at the moment, no, but um, it wouldn't surprise me that that's not in the public domain at the moment if it is happening. We don't know, obviously, the full details of um, calls that, that Putin's had. We know that the one that he had with Macron was described as very negative. So that suggests that Putin isn't in a space to to even contemplate and talk about those things. But but often when there are discussions, they are very much um, those that happen behind the scenes. So at the moment, the strong message from the West is very much standing up to Putin and a very negative um, uh, discussion of, of, you know, what uh, the West will continue to do um, to Russia on the financial front, on the economic front, uh, if it continues doing this, and also what it's going to continue doing to Ukraine. Um, so it is hard to think. I mean, to some extent, the Russians may come up with this themselves, because as I say, it's not clear. You know, they said they're going into, um, they, it referenced denazification absurdly. Um, and they talked about obviously these two um, regions that they unilaterally declared independent. So at some point, they've got to come up with their own measure of what it is that they're trying to achieve and presumably to tell their own public who, you know, they have been telling this um, line to repeatedly that they're in there as a, you know, an act of of, of trying to um, control the Ukraine military to try and bring out a particular set of circumstances. So this narrative that they themselves have created cannot continue uh, and they will have to eventually, um, you know, start saying what else they're doing instead if, if that is indeed occupation. Um, so, it, you know, it sounds terrible because it has been an absolutely awful week, but we are a week into this and there is much that could still change in the coming days, weeks, etc. Um, you know, the, the Russians do seem bogged down at this moment. There does seem to be major problems in terms of their own execution of what they plan to do. And that suggests that there are problems going on with, within their own armed forces. And we've seen in this kind of situation in the past, certainly in, in Russia's own history, that you then have changes of who is in charge, changes of operation and so forth. And that could turn very negative. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a bit about the shelling of, of Ukrainian cities, uh, but it might also be that they start to to look for alternative aims and, you know, start to try and develop their own exit route that mm. um, is acceptable to Putin. And I think that's the key thing is is how much... Is it, what at this stage is Putin is in Putin's mind, and I find that inexplicable because I find the whole thing inexplicable. Yeah. And just, just building on that, sorry, Bronwyn, but just building on what Kath was saying there, I think we, as as Kath was saying, pressure could build inside Russia, but there is also there's wider international pressure. We don't mm. quite know the situation of uh, China at, at the moment, um, and so I think if there's cause for optimism, I wouldn't necessarily place it on this sort of Ukraine Belarusian border talks that are happening. But if the uh, international picture starts to shift, that might uh, lead to a different situation. But the, the other point I was going to make was it, it, it does seem. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are uh, across NATO uh, military strategists thinking about the next phase of this, but the, the NATO alliance and the West as a whole needs to be preparing for a situation where Russia has, you know, some form of occupational control of Ukraine and what that means for the next phase of this, uh, this crisis and the next five, 10, 20 uh, years. Uh, uh, so that, that's the sort of grim but, but necessary work that needs to be happening. I mean, there is an argument that this has put some new life into NATO, an organization that looked moribund for years, really, led by the US, which was complaining that others didn't put in enough money, uh, UK in there very strongly, but otherwise um, 
unsure of its purpose, lacking funds, um, various retreats like uh, like uh, Afghanistan, and generally looking like one of those Second World War alliances, post-Second World War alliances that now is very strained because yeah. America didn't want to take yeah. on the defense of other countries that they felt weren't uh, able to defend themselves. But it looks very different now, doesn't it? Yeah, I remember in our in our Afghan our podcast talking about the Afghanistan um, uh, evacuation. Uh, I sort of made the slightly forlorn uh, uh, counterintuitive point that that the Afghan op- occupation uh, uh, exit, sorry, uh, might um, lead to uh, a sort of renewed purpose in NATO. I'm not sure it did, but I mean, no, no one's going to ask uh, for uh, now about uh, NATO's purpose. Uh, and I think it's it's brought home. It goes back a little bit to what we were saying a few moments ago. It's brought home the sort of cold realities of geopolitics. Uh, uh, you know, perhaps the last thirty years will look like a bit of a holiday from some of them, uh, yeah. and and we're now and back in that. Georgia, come in. Alex, the, the theory is, I mean, that the, the exit from Afghanistan led to renewed Russian purpose. Georgia, mm. sorry, go on. Mm. No, I was just going to say, it's quite interesting to view the whole NATO debate in in Paris because, you know, President Macron, who was the one who said NATO was brain dead, um, when you talk to people in his entourage, they, they you know, you ask them, did he, does he really consider NATO brain dead? Or was it actually just a, a way to kind of kickstart or pour in some new energy uh, into NATO and think about its kind of purpose? And you'll get mixed reviews. Um, but certainly the AUKUS affair, again, you know, that seems like years ago now, but that too... Um, around the dinner table in France, people really questioning France's is membership of NATO. Um, but actually, overall in the French kind of um, government and in the Elysee as well, there is a sense that NATO is absolutely, you know, does play a crucial role in, in guaranteeing European security, but that Europe, the EU should do much more as well. And I suspect next week, EU leaders are meeting informally uh, in Versailles um, to discuss kind of EU growth. And there's going to be lots of questions about how can we innovate uh, in defence? How can we invest in defence? And how can we basically promote buying European uh, versus perhaps buying American or buying British? And so there are lots of questions there beyond the kind of military strategy um, and, you know, securing your borders, uh, but also the question of investment um, and kind of procurement exercises and procurement um, uh, projects. So I think there's a lot going to happen on the European defence uh, scene, uh, which may have implications, which will have implications for the UK as well. And what will they do, do you think, about Ukraine's call to be let into the EU instantly? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, to be honest, um, we saw how difficult it was to leave the EU. Well, it's just as difficult to join the EU. I mean, it, first you need to kind of uh, submit a formal, formal application. Ukraine has done that. Uh, the Commission would then need to review that. You need to make sure that, you know, the, the candidate country has sound institutions, has a good uh, market, solid economy, um, had, you know, shares European values. And there is a question, can the EU realistically grant Ukraine a country at war? Uh, can Status, but even beyond that, then you have the negotiations. You know, does the Ukrainian government genuinely have bandwidth? Um, and then you have a, a whole sway of European countries, including France, that consider that this isn't the time to be enlarging. We need to get our house in order. We've got you know huge internal disagreements over rule of law. We need to sort those out before we enlarge further. But I think I, I, you know, just actually before you go on, I really wanted to ask you about exactly that point. So there was a big EU. Um, as you said, internal ructions just a few weeks ago before this blew up about uh, putting pressure on Hungary and Poland over not respecting 
rule of law, democratic principles of, of the EU and the EU um, winning the right uh, in, in law to uh, hold back money from them. Uh, they didn't come into line. Um, today, we've had Viktor Orban uh, of Hungary saying, I will back the EU on sanctions against Russia. We've got relations with Russia, but this is a time for EU unity. Does that row with Hungary and Poland just disappear now because the EU cannot afford it? I'm afraid not. I think it it sort of um, pushes it slightly to the background, but it certainly doesn't disappear. And I have a sort of an anecdote of last week, um, the Justice Commissioner Didier Reinders, the Belgian, um, who went and met EU leaders um, and talked about the rule of law and really, really sort of said to Poland and Hungary, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, we need to discuss it. And I think there's a recognition in, in Hungary and Poland that this is going nowhere. But member states, EU countries, of course, think that their priority now is on Ukraine, is on the European response. I mean, you've seen the EU go way beyond many people's expectations, including mine, on how it would respond to this. And that is the focus. But actually, the rule of law debates and many other debates about Eurozone reform, Schengen reform, all of that is very much still on the table. And those discussions are ongoing. Thank you for that. Kath, I wonder if you could bring this back home for us and to politics Mm. here. How is Labour playing this? Is this another difficult circumstance like coronavirus where they don't want to be seen to be opposing yeah i mean obviously it's very easy for them to support the government's overall action it's very hard for anyone to oppose the the government's overall action but again we see um with the labor party with starmer's uh, new labor party uh, attempts to try and break away um with the old history and that's particularly coalesced around uh, past criticisms of NATO or debates about the value of NATO and particularly around association with Stop the War Coalition. And you, you saw in the last week, um, obviously, Starmer tried to make sure that several um, MPs who had signed um, a Stop the War uh, supportive letter take their names off that. Admittedly, that was before things escalated, that they had had joined um, joined forces with that. So there are lots of debates around that. But I mean, the overall picture, um, there is general support for the direction of, of what the British government is doing and, um, and the measures that they are taking, where the frustrations and debates are happening on both sides, uh, on both, in, in both parties are around key issues. One is obviously immigration again, uh, and particularly how well, the UK government has adapted to the need to allow Ukrainians, particularly with Ukrainians with all sorts of different links, um, to, to get over here. Um, and another is is around uh, the no-fly zone. There's been a lot of debate around that, including, again, from Conservatives who are much more hawkish on that uh, and want the British government to go further. And then a particular frustration around uh, the UK government's ability to tackle oligarchs and all this um, obviously, discussion about uh, London as being a preference, yeah. you know, home you take, for... Take us into this a bit. I mean, the Foreign Office has yeah. been saying for days and days and days that it's going to bring out a list, and it's brought out a list of barely more than half a dozen people it's targeting. And meanwhile, it, it, officials are saying quietly, oh, we're getting a lot of letters from lawyers, and we don't have the legal capacity to see all this off. Well, yeah. what is, is, is Britain really fallen way behind its rhetoric on, on these things? Yeah, I mean, one is obviously the long history of this. I think it's pretty much accepted that um, the UK has for far too long been too much of a comfortable home for people to bring 
um, you know, disreputable money or whatever you want to call it um, to here and talk about Russian oligarchs and, and so forth. Um, and the, the government was already attempting to, to tackle that, but it was a very long timeline for its economic crime bill. See, we had the Russia reports, which is, you know, several years old now and took a long time for the, for the government to publish it, which was very critical of that. And there's, there's various things that they want to do around reforming companies' house. So it's more of a regulator and less of just a register, uh, about bringing in new laws and so forth. But some of it is just simply about the legislation we already have. Have to bring in sanctions and how effective that is. And we saw briefing from the government today suggesting that the problem was that um, changes to the law as we transferred this over from the EU, because it used to be the we used to be sub, um, through EU law was the way in which we brought sanctions and we, we brought that back to the UK in, in 2018, that that was, uh, made it too easy for people to bring um, you know, uh, uh, court cases and challenge the government on this and that if they didn't do enough due diligence on this, that they would put themselves in place to, to get sort of you know, fines, millions of dollars um, asked by people because they, they didn't manage to... Um, bring the cases in in a, in, a, in a you know robust enough fashion others though pushing back on that and saying actually all of the tools are there for the UK government the problem is capacity of having enough highly qualified lawyers with uh, national security understanding so that you understand the kind of links between uh, effectively dodgy money and the individuals that they're looking at that allows you to make the case and that actually it's not a problem of the tools, it's a problem of capacity. It's quite unclear at the moment, but we do know that the government is bringing a um, bill very rapidly through um, in the next week in order to try and start tackling some of these issues. Big question marks about the economic crimes bill, is it? Uh, yeah, economic crime transparency and something bill. Um, I've forgotten the full title, yeah. So uh, but yeah, it's kind of a subset of the. Yeah, it's a subset of the full bill that it was bringing in next session. Um, and that's going to try and deal with some of this stuff around unexplained wealth orders and so forth. Um, but that then has to go through rapid parliamentary scrutiny. And there's lots of debates going on on, on Twitter at the moment about, you know, similar to COVID, what is the right balance between making sure that you act swiftly when there is a, you know, prima facie case for bringing in hard measures versus making sure that you don't uh, create a legal system that actually you come later to regret. So it's a really difficult balancing act. Uh, Alex, briefly, your your take on this having worked at the heart of government. Well, I can see I have some sympathy for the civil servants working on it because it's phenomenally uh, complicated. I do think, though, I wonder whether the uh, you know the the, the natural uh, cautious legal risk appetite here is uh, 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 you know taking too much precedence in the context of what is uh, in a huge uh, crisis. I mean, I I'm, I'm sure that. EU governments and other governments are facing the same sorts of uh, legal challenges, albeit in different uh, systems. Uh, but I think uh, it is showing up some of the some of the ways in which the British government is well equipped to respond to crises, uh, and some of which perhaps you know some of the things we've seen in the Home Office as well around visas, as well as in the Treasury, uh, how we're how we're less uh, able to. I mean, there are huge complexities there, but I mean there is a sort of crack on with it, please. Yeah, uh, and Georgie, just briefly, how is the scene overseas? And how, how how is France dealing with the same thing of oligarchs writing legal letters? 
So there was a, actually, interestingly, um, an article that broke, I think it was Le Figaro, so the centre-right um, uh, newspaper in France this morning, talking about, you know, could France seize um, assets and properties from from oligarchs um, and their, you know, their French Riviera properties? And is that something that they could do? So clearly, there are some ideas in the UK that are, that are seeping in, into France. But I think, you know, France fully backs uh, the EU. I mean, it's the European Commission uh, that has organised, rallied and you know, coalesced member states for the sanctions regime. These these discussions started weeks ago. Um, it's absolutely unbelievable the level of um, kind of interaction between the European Commission and the White House. I mean, this was daily. The White House was also contacting EU governments al- almost on a daily basis. So there was a real European Commission coalescing EU governments, but also working very closely with the United States and to a lesser extent, the UK. And I think France fully backs uh, sanctions. And, you know, until even last week, well, they weren't sure whether or not, you know, to to kind of exclude Russian banks from SWIFT. They didn't know whether to add Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov, you know, to the sanctions list. And they did. And I think there is more to come um, if Russia continues. Well, there we're going to have to leave Ukraine. But needless to say, an awful lot of that to come in the coming weeks. We will really keep at it. Let's turn now to the two IFG papers that we brought out this week, really significant papers on the, we think so, on the structure of the civil service, on how we think it should be organised, what, what, um, what, what could make it work better. Because these are questions of really go to the heart of whether government works well, and that goes to the heart of public confidence in government, and that is one of the things we are arguing about with Russia, obviously. Alex was the lead author for both of these and has been working on them for many, many months, a very lively discussion with many people outside the building, inside the building, our our board and so on. Alex, just um, take us to the heart of it. What was the problem you were looking at? Thanks, Bronwyn. And I should credit Tom Sass, who's the lead author on uh, the, the second of the papers, as, Which as, is on uh, policy making, as well absolutely. on policy making. But I mean, to, to, to your question, um, confused accountability uh, is is the theme that runs through them. Now, what, what does that mean, and why do we think it's so important? Um, uh, accountability means that uh, the people who are doing the work of government uh, know what they are responsible for, the work that they're supposed to do, and how they're going to be held to account for it. Now, in government, that's uh, to, to the, the classic doctrine of accountability, if you like, is ministers to parliament. And what we're trying to do in this work is uh, explore that a little bit and work out the role, particularly of the civil service, trying to find a sphere for what the civil service is responsible for and how they might be held to account. Because we think this sort of accountability that slid around between ministers and civil servants leads to uh, uh, poor uh, long-term capability planning and the management of resources. Uh, it uh, disincentivizes that sort of long-term planning, means there's ambiguity over who owns risks in government between ministers and civil servants. Um, uh, we also think it goes to some of the problems around cross-government uh, coordination and cross-departmental uh, work. And, and uh, the opportunity here to better define the head of the civil service would help um, uh, lead to a more effective tackling of issues like net zero and regional inequalities and levelling up and all the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast. I think there's also something just sort of finally on the problem, which is that uh, this confused accountability uh, undermines the civil services confidence to to an extent because if you're if if there isn't a clear oversight uh, mechanism then the civil service will hold back um, it won't always give a strong advice to ministers as uh, it could do uh, and I think 
bolstering the civil service's legitimacy will help bolster its confidence and its authority inside government. Now, I've been quite sweeping in all of that. There's good practice, there's bad practice. This is, we're not suggesting this is the, the single thing that would totally revolutionise government. But what, we, what, what, what is interesting from having done this work is the, the need to start a discussion about how you resolve some of these questions of confused accountability, which we've lived with for a very long time, um, but uh, are, are worth trying to iron out and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, reach a sort of new settlement. Mm. Thank you. And, and just take us a bit further into some of your recommendations. You talked about a statutory role for the civil service, talking about mm-hmm. giving the head of the civil service the authority to set the direction, manage its day-to-day operations. Why are those important? Yes. So we're saying there should be a statutory role set out in a sort of statute that we're that we're proposing uh, that would uh, reaffirm some of the uh, uh, the existing civil service uh, um, uh, position, uh, which already exists to an extent in in, in law about uh, impartiality and so on. But it would also go further. And here's where the, the thing I think that is important uh, here and why it would begin to help resolve some of these questions. Uh, we're interested in giving the civil service a clear objective to support the objectives of the elected government of the day and to give head of the civil service, permanent secretaries, civil servants responsibility in particular ways to uh, make that objective happen, to work to that objective, whether it's through the quality of the policymaking advice that they give uh, or through the um, management of uh, contingency planning or uh, finance functions or uh, all the things that you would expect good civil servants to be cracking on with. We're also suggesting a, a civil service board, lots of debate about the composition of that, ministers, former civil servants, uh, non-executive, independent uh, characters um, uh, uh, that would then oversee the delivery of that objective and those responsibilities. Uh, so there's a sort of architecture there. But the reason I think that that's really worth exploring and and, uh, and setting out comes back to giving civil servants more clarity about the things for which they are responsible for, and then confidence to get on and do them. Of course, you know, ultimately under democratic control, and uh, you don't want to entrench a sort of perma state where um, uh, where uh, civil servants are running things with no reference to the uh, uh, to the, the 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 will of the people or, or elected representatives. But drilling down into that responsibility, I think, would resolve quite a lot of those uh, problems that I was talking about a moment ago. Thank you for that. Well, Kath, as Alex is saying, this isn't a new problem. Can you give us a sense of the history? Yeah, I mean, it is a very old problem. If you you know think about the, the civil service as a whole, it's grown organically and therefore its characteristics have effectively evolved, you know, partly because of uh, the individuals who have led it and also the sort of the, the situations that they've found themselves in. And therefore we have this, this civil service that is quite... Uh, it reflects, in a sense, cabinet governments, and therefore it's quite federal. It's not a uh, a hierarchy with a clear CEO and a, you know a clear management. It has management boards. It has all of these terminologies, but still, it's quite diffuse across different departments. With a, a you know, what from the outside looks quite an unclear centre that is able to guide it to make sure that it is constantly reforming itself, that has a leadership, that has very clear objectives in terms of managing it as an organisation and making sure that it is 
up to doing its job. And and that's kind of what, um, Alex, what we are trying to tackle is, is focusing in on that particular issue around how do you make sure that it is actually a modern civil service with those kind of characteristics that in many other walks of life would work well, and yet at the same time respecting its constitutional and its governmental role that does mirror how our government operates with a prime minister and a cabinet and departments that have a degree of autonomy and so forth. So it's it's trying to take a new um, way of, of approaching that. And I think more fundamentally, I mean, you know, Bronwyn, we're, we're doing this obviously constitution review that we, we discussed on a previous podcast. Um, that is also looking at our institutions and thinking about how you can actually empower them in order to make sure that the clarity of their role is 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 much better is is you know both to those outside and also to those doing the job on the inside and trying to basically resolve some of these issues where we have very gray areas about how parts of our constitution operate yeah Georgie, the French civil service is trying to reform as well, isn't it? Or Macron is trying to reform them. Well, that is the question, isn't it? I mean, it's radically different. Obviously, we talk about the French system being centralised. But I think one of the criticisms levelled at Macron is that he's now led it to a hyper centralised system. So even where ministries, uh, you know, and ministers were responsible for setting the line, of course, this had been discussed prior at cabinet meetings. What you're seeing now is very much the president almost deciding on everything, um, and and this has led to road, you know, roadblocks of um, obstacles, and sometimes even ministries finding out after the president had made a public announcement uh, that things were changing. Um, there has been a lot of attempt to kind of reduce the size of, of government. Um, that's something that sort of worked in the beginning, and then because of COVID, they had to recruit many new people. I suspect that if Macron is re-elected, he will try and do that again. Um, But there is a whole question about decision making, about communication, about information flows. And in fact, I was talking to a civil servant the other day who said, gosh, where is the French IFG? So maybe that's something Mm -hmm. to consider in the future. Are you applying, Georgie? (laughs) (laughs) Not yet, because I'm very much um, liking the kind of Europe department. But I think there is, you know, there is scope there if if anyone did want to take it up. Well, there's a a common sense of frustration that we've heard from some of his people. You know, he he likes to say, um, don't tell me you can't do things because of officials, because of the government. It's your government. You know, you've got to be in control of it. So um, we'll see how far he gets with that. Well, we are going to have to leave it all there but i urge everyone to read um the reports which alex and team have brought out which are um very very thoughtful about how to make government in the uk better but that's going to have to be it for another episode of inside briefing so my huge thanks to alex thomas kath Haddon, and of course to georgina wright and thank you all for listening at home if you like this podcast then do check out our sister podcast ifg live We've got new recordings out on the Northern Irish Protocol, levelling up with Andy Haldane. I had a discussion with him earlier this week and Alex's new papers. That's at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And we will, of course, be watching the deeply worrying situation in Ukraine and what it means for Europe, UK and the world. See you next week.